in the Old Testament. A, they were sinners. B, they had to keep making sacrifices for sin. C, they died. D, all of the above. Two, what is true about Jesus? A, he did not sin. B, he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. C, he died, but he is alive now. D, all of the above. And three, what is Jesus doing for us right now? Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, this is the word of God. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered him up, up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. There ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your holy word, and we thank you for uh, all of the word that you've given to us. We thank you for the record of all the things that you laid down in the old covenant for our instruction. We thank you, perhaps even more so, that we have seen the fulfillment of all those things in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this wonderful book of Hebrews that instructs us so well in the perfections of Christ, the superiority of our Savior above all things and all individuals. And Lord, we thank you so much that through him we can draw near to you and even pray that you would help us to further understand that which, what, that which you've revealed to us in your word. Please be with us tonight as we do move from the reading of your holy and errant infallible word, our authority, to the preaching of your word and ask that you would sanctify the words of the preacher. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to both the preacher and all of us who will hear. We come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, how can we claim to be saved to the uttermost? How can we be assured that our sins are completely forgiven? How can we claim things like are claimed in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us? How can we be sure that our salvation is not only accomplished, but secure, that there's not some missing part that at some point our salvation will fall apart because we fail to add something to it or to do something to make it work better? What can help us to experience more that often elusive experience called the assurance of our salvation? Much of the answer to all those things is found right in our passage tonight. The Puritan, William Bridge, in a nice little book called The Comfort and Holiness from Christ's Priestly Work, simply puts it this way. He says, Christ's office as priest is the great storehouse and supply of all the grace and comfort that we have this side of heaven. Let me read that again. 
Christ's office as priest is the great storehouse and supply of all the grace and comfort that we have this side of heaven. Already in Hebrews, we've seen many references to Jesus as the priest and superior to all other priests, which makes a lot of sense. If you simply flip back in your Bibles, a couple chapters, Hebrews chapter 2. Just look at a couple of them. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Next chapter, very first verse. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And We're told that Jesus, and we know that Jesus is far superior to Moses. Chapter 4, you look again. Chapter 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Then at the end of chapter 5, he's likened to Melchizedek, that unique and mysterious priest. Chapter 6, again, right before this and from last week, a priest in the order of Melchizedek on the oath of God's own very existence. Jesus, this unique high priest, even above the great priest Melchizedek. Well, tonight we'll look more at those other references, to the Levitical priesthood, that priesthood ordained by God many, many years ago. God set in place this system to represent this mediation that needs to take place between God, holy God, and sinful man. And that's most pronounced in the priesthood in the Old Covenant reflects back on that system that was effective. It's important for us to remember that that system, when believed in and trusted in, and when people could see that atonement for sin was capsulated or in seed form in those sacrifices, was effective for salvation. That's very important for us to understand. It's somewhat unique, not entirely unique, to Reformed thinking, that, that all the seeds of salvation were there effectively in the Old Covenant, that people could look at the signs, the types, and the, the signs and the prophecies, and see the Messiah coming and entrusting in those things actually be saved. But they were not permanent. They were not permanent. They were meant to fade in time. But again, one of the central things in the Old Covenant that would point people to the mediation of Christ as we know it uh, is the priesthood. And so you think about the duties of the priesthood, intercession on behalf of the people, instructing the people in the word of God, mediation, standing as it were between God and the people, and a big part of that, the sacrifices and all the rituals that they had to go through over and over again. Even the clothing that they wore was symbolic. A big part of that was representing all the people of God, all the people of Israel, the tribes, so that when they went into the presence of God, especially the high priests on the Day of Atonement, representing all the people of God, 
seeking forgiveness and atonement for their sins. And so they would perform these rituals and sacrifices with great detail. I only read a small, small portion from numbers of the details of the priesthood. And I get the sense, in a sacred way, there's a sacred tediousness to all those rituals and all the details. But it reminds us of the holiness of God and how precise things have to be in order for the sacrifices to be made effective. But even in just reading that passage, you saw that it was very involved. And again, that was just a small portion of it. Portion of it. But all this is necessary when you think about it because of the problem of death. Death comes from sin. It really has to do with a problem of sin that leads to death. And so there needs to be a remedy. And so when we look at the priesthood, we see that this idea of reconciliation to God is in there. This thing that brings life being renewed in our covenant relationship with our creator, our living God. And so uh, this addresses the issue of human frailty. You see, sin renders us incapable, incapable of approaching God on our own. We could not, cannot stand in the presence of a holy God on our own merits or on our own sacrifices or on anything that we do for that matter. We need, we need an intercessor. We need a mediator. And so God shows us that through this priesthood. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Let's put it this way. In order for death to be overcome, sin needs to be dealt with. And so you see such a big part of the ministry of the priests was a perpetual and regular seeking God for the forgiveness of sins for the people. Ongoing, ongoing. And God provided mercy. And he provided a way of salvation. But again, it wasn't complete. It wasn't complete. It was a temporary system. Built-in obsolescence, as I've said before. But in the Old Covenant, there was one who would represent the one who would come and fulfill the priesthood and all the sacrifices and all the rituals in perfection, that mediator that would come. Again, a major part of what the priest did, and we read part of that, and there's more of it, was the sacrifice of animals and the shedding of blood. There had to be the shedding of blood. There had to be this death, or there's no forgiveness. We're told in Scripture, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. No forgiveness of sins. There has to be bloodshed. And if you look at the Old Testament and the whole system of the sacrifice and you start to calculate the regularity and the number of sacrifices, it's astounding. And each, each spilling of blood reminded the people of death, reminded the people of the wages of sin is death. Death always has an impact. Some of us become more, more numb to the issue of death, even death of animals I'm thinking about now. I don't think we ever really become numb unless our hearts are really hardened for some purpose for the death of humans. But even with the death of animals, there's, there's something there in death. Even, even hunters or butchers who deal with it, there's still something, and there should be something about death itself. Death has its own gravitas. And I think that's why these sacrifices were so prominent. So people would see and almost recoil every time, at least to some degree, at the idea of death that came with the fall. Most tragically, the death of humans, but also this whole idea of 
the death of animals and this blood that needed to be shed because of the sacrifice because of the wages of sin it requires sacrifice we see that the priests had to go through all these washings and they had to go through all the rituals you see they weren't exempt from being sinners so we turn our attention back to the priesthood now and we see that the people needed forgiveness they needed this constant intercession by the priest and these sacrifices just like we did accomplished in christ but as the representatives of god's people they too needed to be cleansed of their sin on a regular basis forgiven you might say of their sins on a regular basis they were to be exemplary the priests but they were sinners at the same time common sinners the fact of the matter is sometimes they were just normal sinners but tragically very often they were sometimes the worst sinners even the highly esteemed Aaron you can't help but remember his creating that golden calf for the people and that whole tragic story Aaron such a great man in so many ways but so seriously flawed but then then it goes on we see Aaron's uh, I'm sorry, we see Eli's perverse sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Perverse religiously, perverse in other ways as well. You see the corruption of the priesthood. And that, that continues from generation to generation as the priesthood is passed on, as was the tradition, as was the commandment, as was the law in the Old Testament, the priesthood would be passed down generation to generation. But here's where it is by the time we get to Ezekiel. Her priests have done violence to my law. And have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. The very men that were supposed to be representatives or at least types and signs of the coming Christ utterly corrupted come down to the days of Jesus. And if you'll turn with me to Matthew, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, and Lord willing, we'll get there in the morning and not too long. But I want to point out the fact that in the suffering of Christ and in his passion, there's this grotesque irony between God's sovereignty and the great depravity of man, especially the priesthood. This is Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57. Jesus has been arrested already. He's being dragged around. 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas. Remember that name, Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So we have an eyewitness here of what happened in the presence of the high priest. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, 
I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you here in the presence of this earthly high priest who had no worthiness to be the high priest mocking, scorning, and allowing people to spit on Jesus, the great high priest of heaven. Again, what a grotesque irony of God's sovereignty and his plan, but the great depravity of the priesthood. Well, the priesthood, one after another, would pass on their corruption. And their rituals would be repeated over and over again and again and again. But here's the thing about priests, no matter how good they were, and there weren't many good ones. No matter how good they were, they all died. They all died. If you read about Aaron's death, it's a very dramatic thing. Aaron was a beloved priest, corrupted as he was, but when he died, it was passed on to generations after him. But he died. And eventually, the office itself would die off by design. It would die off when Jesus did the final sacrifice on the cross. The priesthood became extinct, as it were, at that point. And that was surely confirmed when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. No place for the priesthood. But more importantly, now Jesus, the great high priest, answered it all, completed it all. It would be, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the idea of an ongoing priesthood with the Pope as a high priest and bishops and many priests is offensive to Scripture and an affront to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the final and great high priest, that mediator, that one sworn on oath to be a priest forever. You think about how in response to all these these negative things to these other priests, how Jesus answers every one of them with positive fulfillment. The writer of Hebrews says that it was fitting that we have such a high priest. Verse 26, back to our passage. It was fitting that we have such a high priest. doesn't mean fitting as if we deserved it. It means fitting in the sense that it was absolutely necessary. We needed a priest. We needed someone who would mediate for us perfectly. And that's Jesus Christ. No surprise to us, but remember the writer of Hebrews needed to ingrain this embedded in the minds and the hearts of people who came out of that whole Old Covenant tradition, that whole Old Covenant command that whole old covenant law that was given by God 
They needed to understand that something radical happened in the person of Jesus Christ, but we need to embrace it ourselves so that we understand salvation and so that we understand that we can have assurance by what he's done. You see, Jesus, unlike the other priests, in all their flaws and their corruptedness and their mortality, turns it all on its head with the power of life. The power of life. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That's Jesus. And this Jesus with the power of an indestructible life is the only one who could conquer death for us. Did Jesus die? Certainly he did. When he came to earth, he lived in human frailty. That's what's so amazing about Jesus Christ's incarnation and his coming to save frail human beings like us. He was frail in his flesh. He was prone to all kinds of burdens of of humanity and temptations. And yet, and yet he was ultimately indestructible because even death could not hold him. The power of an indestructible life, number one. Number two, he was an is and was an uncorrupted intercessor. Tempted in every way, never gave in to sin. Never gave in to sin. Remember how those priests always had to be cleansed over and over again, every day, and especially at the high holidays. But Jesus, Jesus, no sin. He was the flawless, sinless priest. He, in fact, was the blemishless animal that was slain. The utmost sacrifice for sin. This Jesus, because he lives forever, permanent priesthood. He ascends to the right hand of glory, perpetual intercession. No more sacrifice needed. Permanent, ongoing, not transferable priesthood. The one high priest. But there's more. There's more. We can't miss sometimes the very last thing hanging on a verse. Look back at verse 27. Sometimes you break up verses, if they're longer, A, B, and C. This little phrase... Verse 27c. He offered up himself. He offered up himself. Any priest who offered up himself in the past, it would have done no good. It would have just met their own death. But Jesus offered up himself as the priest who is also the sacrifice, that self-sacrifice. Jesus is the lamb who was slain. It's Jesus' blood that was represented when it was sprinkled here and thrown up against the wall there. Jesus was that cleansing water that the priests had to apply to themselves to cleanse themselves. That all represented the perfection to come in Jesus. Jesus is that scapegoat upon upon which all the sins of the people were placed and sent away. Casting our sins, as it were, from the east to the west. 
all based on a heavenly oath upon God's own existence. Son appointed by oath that he would be that priest, but also that acceptable sacrifice, all for our salvation, all for the sake of our souls, saving us to the uttermost. Such, such a thing is so amazing. Saved to the uttermost. There's no such thing as partly saved. No such thing as partly saved. Either Christ's priesthood and sacrifice is completely sufficient or it's not. And the writer of Hebrews is reinforcing here that it is completely sufficient. So that we can have confidence that if we're in Christ, we're saved Saved completely, certainly not perfected yet. There is a very important principle in Scripture. Already, not yet. Already, not yet. Already saved, but we're not yet perfected. If you think you've been perfected, go back to bed and wake up again because you're dreaming. Saved completely, but not perfected redeemed, redeemed. And the redeemed can have true assurance, not based on what we've done. If you have assurance, I am convinced that it can't be because you think you've done anything to deserve it. It's because of what Christ did, not what you do or did. Again, I quote Bridges here. A believer may say that if the Lord Jesus Christ has satisfied divine justice for my sins, then I shall never be damned, and I shall never fall from grace. I have had many fears that I should fall from grace and shall go to hell and perish at last. But if the Lord Jesus Christ has satisfied divine justice for my sin, then God the Father will never punish my sin again, for it was punished in Christ. Therefore, I cannot fall from grace, and therefore, I can never be damned. Now, let no one be presumptuous. Let no one toy with the grace of God. Remember how we've read about the danger of trampling Jesus Christ underfoot again, crucifying Christ again, but the true believer the redeemed can be sure that their salvation is secure. And doubting Christians can be assured that their salvation is complete if you've trusted in him. But seek that wonderful sense of assurance by going to the throne of grace regularly where your high priest intercedes on your behalf. And if you're attempted Continually falling Christian, ask yourself if you don't need to draw near to your intercessor and plead with him. He has the power to deliver you from whatever might be controlling your life. If you belong to him, there's no reason for you to let sin have dominion over your life. It's inconsistent. And so he's promised that sin doesn't have dominion over you. Pray to him, seek him to set you free. And if you're a Christian who's distant, you need to draw near to your high priest. 
but in light of what we know from Scripture, it would only be someone who is entirely foolish if they think that they can somehow, somehow bypass Jesus to go into the Holy of Holies. Somehow bypass Jesus to get into the presence of a holy God without a mediator, without the mediator. That is surely death. Don't dare to try to bypass Jesus to get into the presence of God without the covering of Christ's righteousness. He's holy. And if that's where you are, where you're trying to be right with God without Jesus, then then you really do need to see your wretchedness as a sinner and how you're unworthy to be in the presence of a holy God. But that there is a way, and that way is through Christ alone and through his priesthood and his shed blood. It's the only way. Through his atoning, saving blood and his mediatorial work. Praise God. That's, that's been provided for us fully, completely, and that through Christ we are saved to the uttermost. Let's pray. Merciful and mighty God, if we have thought for one moment that we have any right or any ability to be in your holy presence without the removal of sins, without the remission of sins, without the mediatorial work of Christ, without the shed blood of our precious Savior, without the cleansing water of our precious Savior, Lord, we have been so utterly foolish. But tonight you've brought us back and helped us to see that in your amazing grace you've provided exactly what we needed through our high priest, Jesus who not only makes intercession for us, who's gone before us into the Holy of Holies, not an earthly tabernacle, but heaven itself. And even more astounding in many ways to us is that he, you are Lord Jesus, the Lamb who is slain from all eternity, gave yourself, undergoing the wrath that we deserve so that we might come into the presence of of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, freely cleansed, saved to the uttermost. Lord, we pray that you would burn in us a deeper appreciation for what you've done for our sakes, but that you would also bless us in Christ with that wonderful assurance that only you can give. But Lord, in response, may it also be that we would live our lives unto you. You've called us to be holy as you are holy, but we know that it's not based on our ability, but on Christ alone and his perfect blood. And we come to you in the powerful name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. Oops. Our closing hymn is Arise, My Soul, Arise, number 305, and we'll please stand as we sing together. 305.
And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.